Hi, my name is Sabine Winters and I'm a philosopher of science. In this podcast series, I go into conversations with scientists, philosophers, designers and artists about the role of imagination in their work. In this episode, I'll talk to Mike Stewart. Mike previously worked as an associate professor in philosophy of science at the NYCU in Taiwan. Currently, he's a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at the University of York. Mike received his PhD in the History and Philosophy of Science from the University of Toronto in 2015 and has since spent time as a researcher among other in Pittsburgh, Cambridge, Geneva, Tübingen and London. Besides traditional philosophical methods, Mike also draws on qualitative, quantitative and historical approaches. His work focuses on the scientific imagination. What is scientific imagination? How is it taught? How is it learned? When is it used? How is it evaluated? And what role it plays in scientific progress? He's also interested in the tools that scientists use to extend and focus the imagination, including artificial intelligence, models, thought experiments, narratives, visualization, and computer simulations. Thank you so much, yeah. Mike, for being here. Just as a starter, because we will dive into maybe the difference between scientific imagination and everyday imagination later, but how would you like describe the role of imagination in your everyday life. Right. So I think there's tons and tons of roles. All of them are exciting. I know more about some of them than others, but I would say problem solving, of course. What should I eat for lunch? Which lo-fi playlist should I listen to while I work? Should I clean and mop today or tomorrow? Mm -hmm. That sort of stuff. <laughs> but of course, that doesn't come close to exhausting all of the uses of imagination. I happen to have very vivid dreams. Maybe that's not daily life, that might be nightly life, but still I think it counts. When I wake up, I sometimes replay the things that were going on in the dream world. Um, I also play the cello, and what my cello teacher tells me to do is that you're supposed to imagine the sound of the note you're about to play before you play it. So that's another thing that I do. I also find myself imagining what it's like to be people that I walk by on the street. I don't know if that's creepy or normal, but it's <laughs> something I do. Also, if I'm you know, reading fiction or watching a movie, I tend to sometimes stop and let my imagination run a bit wild. So I would say overall, kind of all the sorts of imagination we've identified in philosophy and cognitive science, I use. So visual, non-visual, empathetic, recreative, exploratory, all those sorts of things. And I do them for all of the things that we do in life, like have fun, be a, be a human, solve problems and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. How would you say, like, does it still count as a definition of imagination if it's not like voluntary? Right. So there are some definitions of imagination where imagination is just producing or recreating things, concepts, ideas, images, where those things aren't present to the senses. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm kind of coming up with an image of a purple elephant riding a unicycle, that counts as imagination, even if I'm asleep when I'm doing it. Probably it's not a conscious use of imagination if I'm doing it while I'm asleep, but I believe in unconscious uses of imagination, so I think it counts. There's also some evidence to believe that some aspects of dreams are or can be more conscious than other parts, so some of them can be controlled in um, lucid dreaming, for example. So I think the main reasons to count dreams as not a case of imagination don't work so well. Um, okay, nice, thank you. <laughs> and, and tying into the use of imagination in your everyday life, you're an academic researcher and imagination is a large part of your work. What is the 
current focus of, of your research or your work? Yeah, thanks. So yeah, it's really scientific imagination is the, the main core objective that I want to learn more about. I mm -hmm. think everybody more or less would agree that imagination is at the heart of not everything scientists do, but quite a lot of what scientists do. Still, with that said, there isn't a lot we know about exactly how scientists learn how to use imagination or how scientists teach imagination to their students or how they evaluate uses of imagination by their colleagues. And so we need to know how they do that, how they think about imagination in order to try to provide some kind of philosophical account of, of those different things. It doesn't have to be a philosophical account. I mean, you could just do sociology of scientific imagination. You could yeah. do ethics of scientific imagination. There's so much interesting stuff. I tend to focus on the epistemic aspects of scientific imagination. So given that science is mostly something that is about getting closer to the truth or accurate models or better predictions or more understanding or something like that, uh, how is that imagination plays a role in facilitating the achievement of those different epistemic goods? And there's unfortunately not a lot to draw on. I would like to, to form an account based on empirical evidence about what scientists actually do. And if there was already a team of sociologists 10 years ago who had already produced all the results, then I would just read that and be very, very happy. But there, that doesn't exist. So I have learned some qualitative and quantitative methods myself to try to extract what I, what I want to know first before building a philosophical, epistemological account. So that's yeah. the, the basic goal. So that's what you are currently also working on. Exactly. So I've done interviews, observations, just kind of basic qualitative sociology on maybe five science labs, two in climate science, two in biology, one in physics. And I'm also working with some space scientists and, uh, and, and a mathematician to try to kind of extract from not just what they say, but also what they do, yeah. uh, how they think about imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is your finding as well? Because to listeners, I'm doing podcasts as well, and I didn't know that you did a lot of of interviews. And then I learned about your work, and I was like over the moon because I'm also very interested in the epistemology of imagine and how it lead to new scientific possibility. Did you also find in your work that science fiction actually plays a very big role in forming new scientific opinions or or giving new directions in science? Yeah, so it's hard to find a scientist who works, for example, in the space science industry who hasn't at some point been influenced by science fiction. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's true for every scientific discipline, mm -hmm. but even in pure math, you find a lot, maybe not a surprising number, but a lot of mathematicians and scientists who say that they were originally motivated to begin science because of something like fiction or science fiction or even portrayals of science in, in other kinds of art. And I think that's interesting. I think it's important to take account of these background motivations that might be floating around in people's minds as they're doing their work. And of course, it goes the other way too. I mean, we have very, very clear and nice examples where some science influences a bit of science fiction. We might think that any example of hard science fiction is a case where you have a writer who takes the newest, best science and then puts it into their books. But then there's these really nice kind of back and forth cases like Jurassic Park, where Michael Crichton did, you know, maybe contributed a little bit to the, to the 
history and future of science itself by coming up with certain ideas that were already sort of floating around but popularized them. So there's this really close connection between science fiction and science itself sometimes. I wouldn't say that in my observations I've seen scientists make a decision about a specific problem because of something from science fiction. I've never seen that happen, and I don't know if it happens very often. Maybe it does in certain fields of science. I think it's more like a kind of general motivator, something connected to why they want to do science, something about images of a, a better future or something like that. Do you also think that there could be like a pitfall of being, is there a thing of being too much influence of science fiction in science? So this is related to something that I asked the scientists that I interviewed, which was, do you find it more likely that your students are going to be under-imaginative or over-imaginative? Mm -hmm. And everybody agreed that the problem is under-imaginative, not over-imaginative. If the universal systems of science education were different, maybe we would have to worry about um, people who were kind of obsessed with a certain science fiction and getting that somehow influencing their their work. But I don't think that's the case. I think actually the current system of science education mostly kicks out people who are very imaginative, mm -hmm. people who might be very excited about science fiction ideas. So it's actually not much of a worry, I think, in the actual practice of today's science. Maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe people should be more imaginative and maybe that would be better for science. We don't know though. <laughs> okay, nice, nice next research topic, maybe. Yeah. As, but as a philosopher yourself, how do you employ imagination in your work? So this is a really fun question. And sometimes people ask me this, what do you think about imagination in philosophy? And I can't explain why I just don't care about the imagination of philosophers, maybe because I am one or because I know so many philosophers. Uh, so I, hadn't, I, have, I don't typically think very much about this, but I think it probably works similarly to what we find in science. So I think probably we try to come up with a new topic for a grant proposal or for a paper or for a talk and we consciously scan through various possible options, we combine and contrast ideas, we have a maybe fruitful interplay between conscious and unconscious imagination where your conscious imagination sets up a possibility and your unconscious imagination plays it out. And then you look at the results and then evaluate those results for fruitfulness or pursuit worthiness or something like that. So in general, I think probably it works in a similar way to how it works in science. Probably also like scientists, I don't reflect very much on my own process of imagination. I know Is that, that it's that there. The I don't care part, maybe? <laughs> uh, so I do care a lot about the role of imagination in, in problem solving and so on. Yeah. I just don't care about it in the, in the case of philosophical problem solving. Mm. And I think that's something that happens in science too. Scientists care about imagination, but they don't seem to think very much about it in their own cases. Yeah. And maybe it's because as a PI, or a principal investigator or a science professor, you're already really good at it. So you don't really need to think about it very much at that stage in your life. The people who are worried about it or people who maybe should be worried about it are like grad students or early postdocs who need to start using imagination more and more, but don't really know how to do it yet. They haven't really been taught how to do it yet. And so they should be thinking about it. Probably the education system should have helped them start thinking about this much earlier. And since I'm at the kind of later stage, I don't really need to think so much about it anymore. Although 
I am interested in metaphilosophy and how philosophers do philosophy and the role of things like intuitions and empirical data. So I really, I really should be self-consistent and, th and think more about <laughs> imagination and philosophy. You shared a, a book on your Twitter account I, I saw of Helen de Cruz, and it was about illustrated thought experiments. Thought experiments are a big tool in philosophy. And I, th I think you agreed that imagination plays a very, very big role in thought experiments. Yeah. So. How often do you use thought experiments in your work? Yeah, good. So this is going to, again, make me look a bit inconsistent. Oh. I'm super interested in scientific thought experiments. Okay. I think they're really, really rich and, and they do a lot uh, for scientists and in science, both pedagogically and at the cutting edge. Philosophers also make great use of thought experiments, but I'm just not as interested in those ones. <laughs> to me, it seems like Scientific thought experiments can sometimes increase scientific knowledge. Mostly what I think they do is they increase scientific understanding, yes. for example, of a new theoretical concept or structure or model or something like that. I think probably something similar happens in philosophy where you have a new idea and you want to give it a bit of more empirical content. So you come up with a thought experiment to do that. But I have to admit that when I was in philosophy classes during my undergrad and somebody would say, you know, here's a thought experiment, my ears would prick up. I'd be like, okay, cool. This is going to be fun. Yeah. And then the thought experiment would come and I would kind of not know what to make of it. And I didn't always share the intuitions of other people in my class and everybody would kind of agree. Yeah. Oh, clearly the outcome is this. We now have a, a philosophical conclusion that's justified by the thought experiment. And I just never really understood what's going on there. So what happened there? <laughs> Could you elaborate? Yeah, 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 sure. So I don't, I don't know. I haven't thought, I haven't really thought about this before. So I might disagree with this later on in the future, but okay. I think maybe what's going on is that I have a very similar trajectory as many other philosophers of science have, mm -hmm. where I was super interested in science. I got into doing science in undergrad. You know, I, I liked it. I had good grades in it. And then I kind of got disillusioned with it. It wasn't answering the questions that I wanted science to answer. It wasn't telling me what life is, what the universe is, how it all works. And it didn't, didn't explain its own method properly or its own justification and all that stuff. And so I thought, okay, I sort of didn't know what to do. And then I found out about philosophy of science and I thought, ah, oh, this is perfect. This is asking the kinds of questions that I want to ask. It lets me stay abreast of all of the developments in science at the cutting edge while asking these big general questions. Now, philosophers who do mainstream philosophy, like mainstream metaphysics or epistemology, they have wonderful, powerful, analytic minds, but I think they have a slightly different perspective on what philosophy is supposed to do and supposed to be. And so when I talk to other philosophers of science about philosophical, mainstream philosophical thought experiments, they tend to have a similar reaction to my own reaction. They just don't always get the same intuitions. I think maybe because philosophers of science are a little bit more scientific. We want to we want to see exactly why we should believe something. Maybe, I don't know if we're more skeptical or more empirical or what, but there's some kind of self-selection disciplinary difference, I think, that maybe explains part of it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a nice answer. Also something interesting to dive into maybe later. But when it comes to, and we already addressed this a little bit in, in the previous question, when it comes to the major misunderstandings of the use of imagination in science, what would it be according to you? Right. So I think we should distinguish between major misunderstandings on behalf of the philosophers and on yeah. behalf of the scientists. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> so on behalf of the philosophers, 
Uh, one kind of obvious one, which I'm sure you would agree with and you've already seen yourself, is that while philosophers of science are interested in science, they aren't always super interested in imagination. I think this is because of a traditional bias against psychological factors in science. They think imagination is maybe an important part of the discovery process, but not an important part of the justification process. And so one major misunderstanding is that, <laughs> that idea that we can cleanly separate you know, pure justification from scientific practice, including the psychology mm -hmm. and sociology of scientific practice. And that leads to this misunderstanding that imagination is not epistemologically or philosophically interesting for philosophers of science. Another misunderstanding, maybe it's not fair to call it a misunderstanding, but I think that a lot of philosophers of science who begin to think about imagination, they do the natural smart thing, which is to look at where imagination has been discussed in detail, which is by philosophers of mind. And philosophers of mind talk about imagination typically as a propositional attitude, mm -hmm. which means a relationship between the self and the proposition, which is something you can think of as the meaning of a sentence. And they think about this in functional terms. So imagination is a propositional attitude. So is belief, so is doubt, so is fear, and so on and so on. Yeah. And these are all different propositional attitudes because the relationship between you and the proposition are slightly different. And that's fine. I think it, it does a lot of good in philosophy of mind, but it doesn't help philosophers of science. I think it's much, much more interesting, much more useful to think about imagination in science as an action, uh, yeah. as a process, maybe as a skill. But thinking about it as a propositional attitude, I think, isn't, isn't so helpful. So the propositional attitude idea says imagination is a special kind of attitude where you don't presume the truth of the proposition at all. Yes. It's not that you necessarily doubt the truth. It's not incompatible with thinking that it could be true. It's just that you're not presuming that it's true either way. And usually you're, some people say you're recreating what it would be like to believe some proposition or something like that. And that might be a pretty good, accurate characterization of what imagination is like as a propositional attitude. Mm -hmm. But if you want to talk about how you learn using imagination, then you're, you're never going to really know when imagining. Imaginings like that, they have to be stacked up. They have to be connected in some kind of process of inference, a process of thinking that eventually gets you from this non-committal attitude of imagination to something like truth or knowledge or mm -hmm. understanding. Mm -hmm. And so focusing on it purely as a propositional attitude, I think, tends to diminish the active, conscious, deliberate component of imagination as manipulating and experimenting. And once that's gone, I think the interesting epistemological bit of imagination is also gone. That's a fantastic answer. Thank you. So <laughs> it's, it's about the experimental space as well of imagination. Would you say that scientific imagination or maybe imagination in general is something of an expertise? So something that you can or must develop? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I think you could talk about imagination in completely general terms as something like an ability. And I think that basic ability is so basic, so fundamental that mostly all humans have it. A lot of animals have it. AI might have it. Certain AIs seem like they, they fit the description. And in that sense, everybody has this ability, but the way people train it, the way the ability is shaped by your past experiences is going to be different. Um, and I think training can have quite a strong effect on somebody's imagination. 
that's not true, interestingly, for visual imagination. It seems like visual imagination starting in your 20s gets worse forever and there's nothing we can do about it. It's sort of sad, but all of these hacks you might see on the internet to make your visual imagination stronger, for example, in Aphantasia Reddit discussion threads, those don't seem to work um, either for imagination or for memory. There's not a lot of good evidence that those things work. Mm. Memory palaces and these sorts of things. So that's kind of too bad. But that doesn't mean that you can't train imagination in other really important, interesting ways. It doesn't mean that imagination can't continue to improve. It certainly can and does. And if you find an expert in any field, you'll find somebody probably who has various kinds of imagination trained to be to be excellent. Of course, the training sometimes is something that you also have to get over. Training can constrain you in ways that end up inhibiting progress. And imagination, interestingly, is also the thing that allows you to get out of your previous training. So you can train it to, to automatically prompt you to go down certain avenues that have been useful in the past, but you can also train it to help you get outside of dogma and certain boxes that you've been stuck in. How do you know you're stuck? When things don't work. Uh, <laughs> okay. Like in, in, in science, what they do is they'll have a problem that's extremely small. They throw everything at it. They, this is why science takes so long. They redo the experiment over and over again. They redo the calculations over and over again. They redo the computer model over and over again. And then finally, they have no choice but to start imagining. And they start imagining at first very small, simple changes to their setup or to the theory or the model or something like that. And when that doesn't work, they imagine bigger changes and bigger bigger modifications to their thinking and to their instrumental setups. And so at some point, they just say, you know what, I'm, I'm stuck. I've, I, I need something bigger. I need to break more constraints. I need to get out of this somehow. Something's not working. Mm -hmm. The world fine... tells them they're stuck. Well, okay. <laughs> but it's a fine line between being stuck and applying a right set amount of constraint to your imagination in science, right? So on the one hand, at one point, you're maybe you're stuck, but you also need to know which kind of constraints you need to, to to set to your imagination to do a thought experiment well. How do you think is this a very deliberate process in in scientists, or is it something that goes completely unconscious in an unconscious way? Yeah, so I don't think it's deliberate. I think in some cases it can be deliberate, but I think for the most part it isn't, especially in the early stages of research when you're troubleshooting a problem that you mm -hmm. can't otherwise solve. But there are, of course, nice cases, which may be apocryphal, even when they are appearing in autobiographies. Like Einstein will say, you know, I knew that this constraint had to be broken or something like that. Darwin yeah. kind of faced the same sorts of dilemmas. And so in those cases, it sounds like somebody recognizes a constraint, recognizes that the constraint has to be overcome. But in general, there's no way we could operate without any constraints. We always have some constraints and we want constraints because with too much freedom, we have no idea what to do. So yeah. we want to decrease the number of possible variables, mm -hmm. but not down to zero or just one. You want to get the right, the right balance between constrained and unconstrained. And I think there's no good method for learning how to do that, or even for doing that in a particular case. It's got to be experimental, I think, at the, yeah. at the bottom. Again, yeah. the experimental space of imagination and, and trying yeah. to figure out and then testing it uh, empirically. Um, 
really interesting. And there was also something that, that uh, kind of triggered me because you mentioned that animals as well as AI can maybe imagine. I've read the book of Amy Kind. I'm, I'm not sure what the, the title was, Creativity and Imagination, I think, in which she mentions that there is a distinction between creativity and imagination. And I believe that she ascribes creativity to AI, but not uh, imagination. Would you say that AI, what, what's the distinction according to you in creativity and imagination that first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. So. If you look at researchers on creativity, I think basically all of them agree that imagination, if not being necessary, is at least very important. I think everybody agrees that creativity is the production of ideas which are both new and valuable or useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you want a process that can give you ideas which are both new and useful. And if you want something new, you could you could use a computer or a random number generator to combine things, but that kind of won't necessarily give you ideas that are new and useful, even though they might give you things that are new. Imagination has been for you know the most part of our species, our random number generator. It's the thing that enables us to combine things in new ways. We, th we, can, we can think it's perfectly free, but of course it's not. It's constrained by all sorts of things. Fiora Salas does some really good work on, on the constraints of imagination. But okay, you've got, you've, got a, you've got a process that can give you something new, but you also need something valuable. And you might think that imagination doesn't do anything there, that it's the usual methods of calculation and empirical, empirical work that tells you whether an idea actually does have value. But I don't think that's true. I think imagination is also important in producing ideas of value. It can help you um, play out what's what what an idea might uh, result in. I think if you look at examples where you have a lab meeting and some scientists are thinking about some problem and somebody suggests a solution, everybody goes quiet. What are they doing? They're all imagining at the same time the same sort of thing, and they're trying to see, okay, if it was that way, would that thing work out? And this is especially true in any kind of bio or any engineering-based science. And they will usually come to conclusions often the same conclusion, but sometimes different conclusions. But what they're doing is they're deciding, yeah, actually that idea has some value, we should pursue it further, or that idea actually wouldn't work out because of some problem in the setup. And so I think imagination is a super important thing that we do with our minds in order to end up with creative ideas. And Julia Sanchez Dorado has this nice paper where she says that for scientists, creativity is just imagination plus a thumbs up, basically. Mm -hmm. It's like when imagination goes right, that's creativity. And I think that's true. So I think they're very, very closely related. And for scientists, they're often spoken about synonymously. But I agree with Amy Kind that we should um, differentiate them, distinguish them for the sake of philosophical analysis. Mm -hmm. Imagination is very clearly a psychological or social process where creativity might be thought of as a property of external objects like a smartphone. Um, that could be a creative thing whereas there aren't any things that are imagination things. So yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a good distinction. And in terms of AI, I would disagree with Amy. And I would think that depending on how you define imagination, some AIs look like they do have imagination. So then the question is, how do we want to define imagination? Which is, of course, the question <laughs> in philosophy of mind and is also a super important question for those of us interested in scientific imagination. But on some plausible definitions of imagination, AI comes out looking like it has it. And that might be repugnant. People might not like that idea. My response to those people is to say that if you think of imagination as a deliberate thing, which you should 
which you should which should be praiseworthy. So you can only have an imagination if you've earned it or something. That's a pretty strict condition for having an ability, but it makes people happy. You can sleep at night with that kind of definition of an ability because you can count out AI. But I still think there are going to be AI which in some sense are responsible for the abilities that they have. They generated those abilities through more work than most of us had to put in. <laughs> they run things millions and millions of times. They build up these abilities. And so like the AlphaGo program has certain abilities that it earned in some sense. It's not conscious, of course, but if you think that an ability has to be something that you, that you earned, I think imagination as an ability could already be possessed by some AI. Okay, I thought that with imagination, I was on the safe side on, on, on staying away from AI. Also because of the distinction that Amy Kind made between creativity and imagination. I'm, I thought I'm still good. I, I'm still, but earning it is an interesting take, I think, but it also implies some kind of intentionality to wanting to, to become imaginative or having some goal set. And this is, still lacking, I guess, in AI. Yeah, it depends what you mean. So if oh, you gosh. think goal directedness <laughs> is all that matters, then yeah. they have goals. And yes. you might say, well, no, you have to set your own goals. They can do that too. So oh. it depends on how you define intentionality. If you mm -hmm. have the classic semantic sense of intentionality where it has to be about something, this is a very different sense of intentionality. That used to be thought of as one of the things that clearly separates computers from people. We know what the symbols mean and they don't. But that's also changing because you can you can have a computer build up its notions through interaction with a virtual or real environment via something like cameras or virtual environment models or things like that, haptic feedback. So it's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky, but it's not a podcast about AI. So let's leave it for now. I wanted to go back to imagination. So when it comes to this, and this is something that I'm super interested in. So what role would you ascribe to imagination in the development of scientific theories and models? And this is a very big question, but maybe you could summarize it somehow. Yeah, 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 of course. So let's see. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's connected to this other issue about whether imagination is doing the heavy lifting or not. I think there's a lot of really easy answers to this question where you say, well, imagination helps to inspire new hypotheses or come up with new experimental designs or helps you to interpret data and evidence and that sort of stuff. And that's all certainly true. I think everybody would agree with that. The question is, does imagination ever on its own justify a theory or something like that? Mm -hmm. And I think the exciting answer would be yes. Unfortunately, my answer is no. Oh. I, don't think, I don't think imagination on its own tends to provide justified true beliefs. I think it's certainly possible. And I think it happens in some limited cases. But while this sounds depressing, it's only because I'm using the philosophical notion of knowledge as justified true belief, where you have a belief and it's true if it corresponds you know, with reality. We know that beliefs never perfectly correspond with reality because our beliefs are usually in language and all of our descriptions are going to be imperfect, uh, incomplete. The weird thing is that the more descriptive, the more accurate we get with our beliefs and descriptions, the less likely they are to be true. If I say there is something, that's true. But if I say I am 183 centimeters, that's false because I'm not 183.0000000 to infinity centimeters. I deviate some I deviate from that value by some finite amount. 
even and it changes of course during the day. So I don't think most of our beliefs are true and the issue about justification goes back for thousands of years and mm. it's still kind of a mess in epistemology. Does justification, you know, it comes in degrees, but knowledge seems like it doesn't. You either know or you don't, whereas you're more or less justified. So there's all these issues with knowledge. And so I like thinking about understanding. I think theories give us understanding. I think models give us understanding. And I think imagination can give us understanding. I think that's what we often use it for in science and in everyday life and in philosophy and elsewhere. So in that, in that case, I, I do think imagination plays a super important and essential role in the development, the lead up to a theory or model that provides understanding in also the vehicle of the understanding. So you use imagination to explore in your own mind what a theory or model means in a kind of physical or empirical sense. So Einstein says, simultaneity depends on your reference frame. Okay, you can write down the math, super easy. But what does that mean? What does that mean for reality? And so he gives us a thought experiment with a moving train. And then you go, oh, I get it. I see, I understand now what he means by that. Mm -hmm. And that's understanding of a theory or a part of a theory, but you can also yeah. have understanding of the world via a theory that you understand. Because if the theory is on the right track, if it's well empirically supported, then your understanding of the theory is understanding of the world. Yes. And so I think imagination isn't just kind of a mediating vehicle, but it's something that can directly produce understanding because the scientist has to come up with it in the first place using their imagination. They use imagination to come up with that understanding, which they then communicate to us in imaginative ways that appeal to our own imaginations. So I'm really excited to hear you say that imagination unlocks maybe non-propositional knowledge also about the world, which is what my conclusion was in my, in my thesis about Kepler's work. I wrote my thesis about the Kepler's Somnium, which is science fiction, in which a demon helped a boy travel to the moon, to look from the moon to the earth, to see the earth rotate. So what I argued is that this science fiction of 30 pages was a very elaborative thought experiment, like I think many science fictions are, deconstructing the science, putting it into a more compelling argument than just if A then B, but this addressed the audience in a very, very different way. So it addressed the audience in a way to come to the conclusion themselves and to see through their mind's eye the earth rotating when following every step in the science that he argued for. So my conclusion was more or less that it, it gives a non-propositional understanding of the science that Kepler was investigating. There must be something in the air. Nowadays, people our age and younger, I think, are really excited by the idea that, first of all, imagination plays an important role in science. And second of all, what it does is something that's non-propositional, not traditionally conceivable as the old school kind of knowledge. It's not something that the positivists maybe would have liked, but it's more like mm. yeah, understanding something like this. So if I'm hearing you or hearing you correctly it's not an epistemic source itself but it's enabling other sources of knowledge such as memory and non-propositional knowledge right so i think i would go further and more <laughs> radical and say that okay. it does have its own epistemic value it um, does yeah that it doesn't just enable so i think it, it does enable other sources of knowledge for sure but it's its own, it can be a source of understanding. Okay. While, while I don't think it typically is used for or succeeds in producing knowledge, it is 
often and su- often used for and successful in producing understanding. Okay. So you can you can in your own mind test out various interpretations of a concept and recognize the correct interpretation of a concept, which isn't the same thing as gaining a, a new justified true belief about the, the external world, oh. but it is an important epistemic achievement. And a lot of this depends on what you mean by understanding. If by understanding you mean something like a grasp of the connections between elements of any kind, so theoretical elements or elements of a system like the circulatory system in the body or something like that, or auto mechanics or an economy, you can gain a grasp of those things where grasp means something like an ability to be able to successfully categorize and recognize and manipulate things because imagination can sometimes produce abilities. I think that's pretty straightforward. You do this a lot in therapy or in other places where you use imagination to practice something. Like in in sports science, they use uh, visualizations to help athletes to improve their abilities. So I think you can use imagination to either give you new abilities or to mobilize existing abilities from a different domain into the current Mm -hmm. domain. So you can gain abilities and those abilities could be abilities to manipulate or categorize or evaluate explanations or generate explanations or accommodate and interpret data. So there's all kinds of things you can use imagination to do, which I think counts as increasing understanding, which I think counts as an epistemic advance. Thank you. Okay. The last question then, which is one of my favorites, uh, what role does wonderment play in your work and how is wonderment associated with imagination? Yeah. So I think something like wonder or or the sublime or this kind of feeling that there's there's more to all of this is definitely <laughs> one of the motivations that you find very frequently in both scientists and philosophers. We have this feeling that there's that there's something else going on and also that it's amazing at the same time and it's a wonderful thing and it's definitely the kind of thing that keeps us getting out of bed and bringing us back to our laptops and to our lab benches so i think it's super important i think maybe we could separate it into a kind of system 1 and system 2 version so mm-hmm. system 1 version would be the intense emotional reaction that you have where your pupils dilate and your skin conductivity changes. It's a visceral experience that you have when you're literally faced with something that's wonderful. In a system two, wonderment would be more like a cognitive general feeling that you have, which you could have all the time, even if you're not necessarily thinking about it. And this would be kind of like rage. Like if you stub your toe, the system one reaction is that feeling of kind of anger or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas righteous indignation about oppression or racism or something like that, you can you can be mad at that all the time without feeling necessarily any kind of uh, increase in your heart rate or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so you can have wonder in both of those senses. And I think it's the second sense that's the one that kind of motivates us in general and motivates a lot of scientists. Of course, it's not the only thing. Beauty motivates scientists. Truth motivates scientists. Making a better world motivates scientists. But wonder is one of the things that motivates them. And I think that's really important. The connection to to imagination would be that kind of indirect. Wonderment is important. It gets you going. It keeps you going. And imagination is one of the things you are then motivated to use in solving problems and getting to the bottom of whatever it is you're interested in. I actually think that if there's a tighter connection than that, there can be problems. So if you find general relativity wonderful the first time you encounter it, you know, you're know, 10 years old or something and you read about it, or you see it on a YouTube video and you think, wow, that's so amazing. And then you start imagining about it, you're almost definitely going to go wrong because you don't know the details of it. You don't know the history of it. You don't know the other options. 
And everybody I know who's who works on something like Einstein or general relativity, they get letters from people saying, I've proved Einstein wrong. I know what's wrong with general relativity. I can oh, wow. make Newton right again. And so <laughs> this this happens a lot. And it's connected, I think, to, to conspiracy theorists and so on. When you start wondering too early, when you start using imagination about something that you find wonderful too quickly, then you have too much free free space to roam in. And it's not going to be properly constrained. I'm not a fan of constraints, but I think you need you need some and those constraints should come from our best our best theories and uh, the the best kind of knowledge and, and expertise that we have. So I would say this is true for science. It's also true for philosophy. I think when you do philosophy and you first read Plato or some of these big ideas in Descartes or Hume and you think, wow, that's so amazing. And then you look at modern mm -hmm. philosophy, which does these tiny little additions to our existing understanding or knowledge about philosophical problems. And you think that's so boring. No, no, no. I want to think about Kant and I want to think about whether we can really grasp the noumenal world directly or something. Can we solve the external world skepticism problems? But if you do that and you're using your imagination on these big, wonderful problems, I find it's actually less efficient, less effective, less less good for society uh, than in other cases. I don't think that's true for everybody. So I think you can get taxpayer money justifiably to work on this using your imagination. But I think in that case, you should be in an art department. Those are the experts who we should allow, who we should encourage to imagine about these kind of really big questions. Wow. Okay. And to, to you personally, how how is Wonderment... Uh, integrated in your work? Well, there are certain aspects of imagination that I find just endlessly interesting. I, Ever since I learned about aphantasia, I have almost nothing positive to say about it, philosophically speaking. I just think it's such a fascinating thing. I mean, there are, there are these people, and at first they thought it was 3% of the population, but it keeps growing every day as we find more and more people who have this condition. These people who can't bring up any kind of sensory uh, information in their mind's eye. They can't visualize necessarily, or they can't do it in color, or they can't do it in any kind of vivid way. They can't maybe bring up different um, sounds or touches or things like that. And this is just so interesting to me. There's lots of mathematicians, there's lots of physicists. I think aphantasics are probably overrepresented in the sciences than elsewhere, but they're also in the arts. How does being an aphantasic change the way you use imagination to solve problems and to make progress in science or art or philosophy or anywhere else? I think that's just so amazing. And so there are lots of things like that where I don't have a specific philosophical axe to grind. I don't have a theory that I want to convince everybody of. I just, there's just these features of imagination that keep me waking up and getting back to work because I just find them so interesting and, and I want to get to the bottom of it. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. If people want to find you online and connect with you, where can we find you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Also, I have a website, michaeltstewart.com, and that should probably have, yeah, I'm Google Scholar, Academia, all that stuff. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and the generosity of sharing your knowledge. Thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. <laughs>